This is Sit Rap on BFBS with Kate Chabot. Unite and level up, ringing together the whole of this incredible United Kingdom. You all come to us young people for hope. How dare you? The worst mistake that the United States has ever made, in my opinion, was going into the Middle East. Two aircraft carriers in their base port. You know, what a fantastic end to uh, 2019. Hello and welcome to the final sit rep of 2019. We've had two Brexit deadlines pass, a general election, and now a brand new government to see us into 2020. So what will next year bring in terms of defence, security threats and foreign affairs? Well, to discuss all of that in this hour-long special, I'm joined by Professor Michael Clark, former Director General of the Royal United Services Institute, RUSI, and now Associate Director of the Strategy and Security Institute at the University of Exeter, Lucy Fisher, who is Defence Editor at The Times, Paul Rogers, who is Emeritus Professor of Peace Studies at the University of Bradford, and Global Security consultant with Oxford Research Group and Christopher Lee, uh, SITREP's own defence analyst. So before we get stuck into what may come in 2020, let's have some brief thoughts about 2019. Professor Michael Clark, did you expect 2019 to be so eventful? Uh, yes, it was fairly clear at the beginning of 2019 that we were in for quite a year. Remember, we were coming up to Brexit. We we're going to leave in March and then we we're going to leave in October. Um, we were having a nervous breakdown politically, and we've seen that. That's what we've had. And here we are now at a big moment, not just in our politics, but in our history, because we are now definitely going to be outside of the EU, and we are now on the road to the breakup of the United Kingdom. How far that will go, we don't know, but we're on the road. So this is quite a big moment. Lucy Fisher, your first year defence correspondent, now defence editor. What about you? How has it been? Well, it's been pretty exciting for me to um, go through three different defence secretaries. Obviously, Gavin Williamson's explosive sacking was a real uh, moment. Um, Penny Mordaunt, I was delighted to see the first female defence secretary appointed. Um, not for long. Not for long, um, all but 100 days. Not really enough time for her to show her mettle. Um, obviously, the Navy were very happy to have a reservist and someone in Portsmouth seat um, in that position. Now, of course, Ben Wallace, we haven't seen that much of what he can do. He's obviously won the department $2.2 billion in the latest one-year spending round. But it'll uh, be interest interesting to see what he does going forward. And Paul Rogers, um, it was the year climate change really came into public consciousness, would you say? Yes, it was. I think the combination of reports from the scientist committees in the IPCC, uh, the public mood and many other things, and sheer, the, the sheer intensity of uh, severe weather events. But as well as that, I think one has to see what's happening in the Middle East, uh, the killing of Baghdadi, but also the real doubts as to whether you would get the, the, the beginnings of a conflict with Iran, uh, and then the whole dimension of the role of Turkey and uh, Russia as well. So it's a heck of a lot happening. I would agree with Michael. In a way, we were expecting uh, the unexpected in this year, and we certainly had it. How do you think you'll look back, Christopher Lee, on 2019? Well, I suppose it's the Boris effect, isn't it? Um, it's almost as if the land was sort of swept with it. Um, but the most important thing, I thought, for, for, for me, was uh, uh, President Macron in France, when he said NATO was brain-dead or something very similar to that. And I think it raised two points. One is that, immediately raised two points, one thing, he's probably quite right. 
that I mean NATO is it, it, I don't mean it's on its way out but NATO is not NATO as they would like it to be. So you, was that the biggest surprise for you? It was a surprise that he said it when he when he did there was no no sort of warning that he might be saying it. And the other thing was 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 the balance it came at a time when you had NATO meeting for its uh, its 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 birthday and also you had the climate change in in Madrid. And it was quite clear that the important all in the same week, the most important conference was the climate change conference, not the NATO conference. NATO conference was, 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 wasn't even a decent party. Yes, I mean, if you look back at the recent climate change summits, the 2015 one in Paris made interesting progress. It set the sort of standards to be reached. We've then had three duds in a row. Uh, you know, it, uh, basically with Madrid, the most recent, which means probably with the change in the public mood and the science, uh, the next one, which will be in Glasgow in uh, almost exactly a year's mm. time, is going to be hugely important. We'll be we talking a bit more later yeah. in the programme about, about climate. Any other surprises? Mm. Just throw that into the table in this year's defence issues. Well, one surprise was a couple of things that didn't happen mm -hmm. because, you know, years should be thought about in terms of what doesn't happen. And there wasn't a big blow-up in the Gulf, as we thought there would be. Mm -hmm. uh, there was an attack on Saudi Aramco, uh, which you know, diminished about half of the output of the Saudi uh, oil production and reduced oil by about 5% for a while, and nothing happened. The United States did not react. That was actually a, a big moment where the lack of action will be quite consequential because that sent a message around the Middle East about what you can and can't expect from the United States. The United quite States important. is finished, mm. isn't it? Yeah. As a world power. Absolutely finished. That's what they think in the Middle East. We'll yeah. be talking about the US as well a little bit later in the programme. <laughs> Before we talk about where Britain finds itself now post-election and pre-Brexit, here's a little reminder of that very busy year in British politics. The eyes to the right, 286. The nose to the left, 344. So the nose have it, the nose have it. The second female Prime Minister, but certainly not the last. I do so with no ill will, but with enormous and enduring gratitude to have had the opportunity to serve the country I love. Boris Johnson is elected as the leader of the Conservative and Unionist Party. I'd rather be dead in a ditch. It costs a billion pounds a month. It achieves absolutely nothing. What on earth is the point of, of further delay? Stop! The exit poll is predicting, is indicating, it's a Conservative win that the Conservatives will have. 368 seats. Let's get Brexit done, but first, my friends, Let's get breakfast done. Thank you all. Thank you all. So, unusually for this time of year, Britain has a new government after the Conservatives' landslide victory in the general election. Uh, Professor Michael Clark, it looks like this government may do things very differently indeed. How's that going to affect defence, do you think? Well, um, it's hard to tell at the moment because they're going through this week of triumphalism where they're trying to park their tanks on Labour's lawn and that's, in a sense, inevitable. We'll see after Christmas how the government settles down and after the first uh, reshuffle. But what the Conservatives said in the middle of the election, it wasn't in their manifesto, but in the middle of the election they suddenly said that we'll have a major review of, in a sense, global Britain. We will make global Britain work by shaking up all the elements of it, foreign policy and defence and intelligence and uh, foreign aid and so on. <clears throat> and we'll see if that review pushes its way through. With a, a, an 80-seat majority, 
I would guess that the Conservatives will be in power now for 10 years, and they will think that too, so they've got the opportunity. They, could, they can do something quite radical, they can push it through, and they can make it work. So we'll see if they do. Lucy Fisher, how are you reading the situation? Well, I certainly think that Boris Johnson winning such a commanding majority um, means he not only has the stability, and as Michael said, possibly a decade ahead of him to get a lot of po domestic policy underway, but I also think it gives him um, a much more um, commanding presence on the world stage. Um, I think he's going to be seen as uh, a, a much stronger leader. I think Britain may have a kind of bounce um, following the election results um, in the global arena. Certainly with regards to the defence review, um, huge concerns in the MOD to learn that Dominic Cummings, the maverick um, chief strategist in number 10, personally wants to take control. Is, is he actually going to be in control? Is that, is that confirmed? Do we know that? We know that it is for him a personal priority to get a grip of procurement. So he won't be doing this sort of the day to day, but obviously the final decisions, the conclusions of that review will go through him. And going through Dominic Cummings' um, very opinionated private blog, most of which was written when he was outside government, gives a lot of clues to his view. He's very much a, a critic of the aircraft carrier programme. He's got a lot of concerns about re re revolving door culture in the MOD, and um, I think it will be interesting to see how, how that goes forward. And remember, this, this man is, is now extremely powerful. He's completely and utterly unelected, totally mm. unelected. He's not even very popular, and he seems <coughs> to wield immense power for the time being in Downing Street. I, th I suspect it'll be short-term, but for the time being, he's very powerful. Chris Lee, how do you see it? Is Dominic Cummings coming for the military? 19, 1980s, the then new Defence Secretary, Michael Heseltine. Peter Levine, yep. was it? He got a man called <coughs> Peter Levine from Marks and Spencer or somewhere like that and said, sort out procurement. Mm. And they sorted it out even by now. So I think that what they have to decide, and these are the big issues, one is who's going to be in charge of it. And they brought some of the best people in mm. to make it work, and they never have done. Paul Rogers, how do, how do you see it? Is it impossible to sort out procurement at the MOD? I think it's hugely difficult. I mean, the experience of the last five years in particular, so many big programmes running into really serious trouble, occasionally getting into the public domain, but not very often. And behind the scenes, there are real worries. And I think within the Treasury, they're almost holding up their hands in despair at the inability to control costs on these really big programmes. They're mm. just running away. Uh, so, yes, I think this is going to be a major issue. And in a sense, Johnson has to have a lot of money to spend if he's going to maintain his popularity, particularly outside of the South East England. And I think there will be an eye on certainly not increasing defence spending, but maybe even curbing it. We shouldn't rule that out. Professor Michael Clark, just supposing you were advising the government, the new Prime Minister, on what the priorities are in terms of threats to security, both now and future, what would you be saying? I'd be saying that you've got to think about Europe, <clears throat> that Europe is a, uh, is a neighbourhood that's getting more insecure by the month almost, and that the best thing we can do just in terms of Brexit is to show what good Europeans we are in any case, and even if we weren't Brexiting, we should, we should concentrate on Europe, because that's now becoming the arena of our security. And what security. does that mean exactly in terms well, of it defense? Mean, it means ru Russian um, behaviour, Russian blackmail, Russian encroachments, the, the attempt to actually undermine NATO and undermine the consensus within NATO, but also remember China is, is not a military threat to Europe, but it is a threat to the consensus of Europe because Chinese economic policy is doing exactly the same as Russian subversive policy, so that we, we need to rededicate ourselves in Europe to collective defence and collective security in our values, and we need somehow to rework a transatlantic relationship. The transatlantic relationship is in a terrible state at the moment. It's not, it's not completely gone, but it's, it's not very strong, um, and that relationship needs to be rethought, at least at the political level.
I think um, China's particularly, <clears throat> excuse me, particularly interesting, given that the context in, in NATO that Russia um, has been a unifying force that all parties agree that it is a threat. But China was obviously discussed for the first time at the leaders' meeting in December. It really has the power to divide. You know, there's there's countries on the eastern flank of Europe very much concerned about the attention being taken away from from Russia. <clears throat> There are countries on the southern um, borders of Europe that are keen to sign and, and indeed have signed um, memorandums of understanding with China, want to do business. And I think there's a real need for, for Europe to get a collective policy and for NATO to come together on China. When you get to that collective policy, you then get a shift, haven't you? You get a shift course down to, to the south. Look at what the, the um, Central African Republic is doing at the moment. Mm. Um, I mean the chaos there and potentially one of the greatest countries in Africa so we've got to think Africa if you're right Mike that, that, that Boris is going to be around for 10 years and may even have Dominic with him then I think what we're going to see and what we should be thinking about is that the British forces will have to be used for something else than they're being used or planned to be used for now. Professor Paul Rogers. Yes, I think if you're looking at this globally, there are two big issues. Yeah, climate change, which you're going to talk about later, that's a key one. But the other is what you might broadly call revolts from the margins in an era of remote warfare. An American uh, strategist many years ago said that one of the changes is changes in technology which make it easier for the weak to take up arms against the strong. And it's a, going to be a very different world because you have all this problem of partial economic marginalisation. You look at the revolts in many cities we've been seeing over the last year. It's been overshadowed by other things, but it's significant. In a sense, you have far more educated young people with really rather weak life chances ahead of them. Mm. And there's much more anger and resentment than we realise. Michael Clark, you said on SITREP before that this point in time is a real tipping point. Mm. Um, as we head into the 2020s, what do you mean by that? I mean that we've had a decade of strategic drift, that we haven't had a clear strategic orientation in this country since the economic crisis hit us in 2008. And yet in the middle of this decade of strategic drift, we took the biggest strategic decision for 50 years in, in, in taking the Brexit decision, where our, our the global Britain and whatever that means, it was a sort of an afterthought. The strategy behind Brexit, the Brexit decision was just an afterthought to a more complex decision. And we can't wait until Brexit is somehow thoroughly behind us before we reorientate ourselves to the 20s. So the tipping point is now. Between now and 2023-24, a number of things are going to change to our disadvantage in Europe, in economic terms, in Asia. And if we don't grip the, the, our national interests now and stop talking in vague terms about our role in the world and the rules-based international order, we've got national interests here. We've got to see those interests and pursue them, which include the rules-based international order, but we, we, we use windy rhetoric when mm. we should be much more hard-nosed about it. Lucy Fisher. Well, I think it should be a cause for optimism then that we're going to have this major foreign policy review. And again, the person who's going to be leading that, and this is confirmed, is John Bew, a you know, respected foreign policy expert and historian and a champion of rail politics. So I think that possibly gives some, some clues to what we can expect. You know, he's an Atlanticist, mm. someone who rejects um, the drive by Macron for more strategic autonomy for Europe from, from the US. Um, I, I think that is that thinking is going to be a core project of the Johnson but administration. But not any notice of him, will No, he won't. No. Um, um, you will not take any notice of him. That's already decided. That's what they, they understand that. 
But they will have to. They point. They can't marginalise Britain from European security in or out of the EU. And I've got some hopes for this review, as Lucy says. I mean, I think John Bew is extremely good. Mm. He will add the foreign policy element to it and the national interest element. If they get this review right, then in 18 months' time, we might actually have a strategy that, that our European friends will simply have to take notice of, which will be to their advantage if we get it right. Let's With two aircraft carriers, which we'll have to get rid of. Uh, that's not they really can't part to, of the strategy. But they, no, it's not. But it's, 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 it's fact. But they're sunken costs, though, aren't they? I think that the concern is, you know, if they could sell them, if any of our allies could afford to pay, you know, something near market value, it might be, it might be but an the attractive Navy will option. will never get anybody to drive them. But the thing to do is you sell one to the Chinese and the Indians have the other. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> Let's just talk briefly about NATO, because you brought up, Chris, about Emmanuel Macron saying that NATO was uh, strategically suffering from brain death. Um, how do you see, Paul Rogers, uh, NATO moving forward in the 2020s? Frankly, very difficult to see, because the point is it, it arrives out of the Cold War you have the renewed problem with Russia but remember Russia has an economy about the size of Italy it's incredibly good at basically doctoring things and working things mm. it's not intrinsically a very major economic power and I think NATO really has huge problems because it isn't fit for the purpose that a country like Britain is going to need but it also has huge problems because of Turkey doesn't it Michael Clark and its relations at the moment with the US yes I mean Turkey is a real problem for NATO I mean some say look Turkey is so important to the southern flank of NATO and it spans the Middle East and so on we can't kick Turkey out of the alliance or invite Turkey to leave. On the other hand, you know, people wonder, well, what else have you got to do to be inv invited to leave an alliance? I mean, Turkey is so anti-NATO almost in what it is doing I mean, politically do, 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 and in its equipment. It's very hard to see how we're going to reconcile that. Well, I take a slightly different view. I think, you know, Turkey, for all its um, threats to veto the E3 plus Poland plan at NATO, it didn't do that. It stepped back from mm. the brink, agreed that new updated well, defence plan. And now, now it's threatening perhaps to close the US airbase in southern Turkey as well. Not a very NATO-minded move, is it, if it were to do something it's like not, that? It's not, but in Turkey's mind, its its quarrel is with the US, it's with Washington, mm. not, you know, and, and, and the argument over being kicked out of the F-35 programme it's it's more complex i think than than what we often hear which is turkey is pivoting towards russia or pivoting away from mm. nato it seems that they want to stay within nato although their behavior is being disruptive of course the, mm. the, what the, the foreign policy professionals always say just play it long with turkey you know um, erdogan won't be there forever and turkey you've got to recognize turkey's responsibilities in the middle east that that's just historic they'll will do that and so play it long and just keep them in and i can see that but it's doing an enormous amount of damage to NATO on a sort of month-by-month -month basis at the moment. Now, you're listening to a SITREP special with Professor Michael Clark, Lucy Fisher, Professor Paul Rogers and Christopher Lee. Now, the last 12 months saw plenty of activity for the British Armed Forces. Operation Shader continued for the RAF over the skies of Iraq and Syria. The Army continued with its commitments in the Baltic as part of NATO's enhanced forward presence. But it was the Royal Navy who had a particularly eventful 2019. What's happening in front of me is a remarkable sight, but it used to be relatively routine for the British forces. Jets, just a matter of metres above the Atlantic, slides across above the deck of HMS Queen Elizabeth and then touches down. Just a bit of a bounce as the 14-tonne aircraft lands. Just wonderful. It's taken uh, many, many years, many thousands of people right across the country. This has been a national effort to bring this aircraft carrier to where we are today. They have done an incredible job of protecting large numbers of vessels uh, going through the straits. It's been a relentless job for HMS Montrose and the MTO and other naval personnel. Two aircraft carriers in their baseport. You know, what a fantastic end to uh, 2019.
You heard there the F-35s landing on HMS Queen Elizabeth. The former Defence Secretary Penny Mordaunt praising the Navy's work protecting vessels in the Gulf and Commodore Steve Morehouse clearly delighted that both the aircraft carriers are docked at Portsmouth together. So what sort of things will our soldiers, sailors and air crew be involved in in 2020 and beyond? Uh, Lucy, to you first. Well, I'm very interested um, about the uh, Army joining the UN mission in Mali and I think that's something we're going to see more of. So we've got 200 150 personnel going out uh, as of June or July 2020. And I think, um, as Christopher mentioned, with China really getting involved in Africa, that is something that is causing huge concern in Whitehall. In addition to the Chinese influence, you've got problems with um, climate change, fragile economies, a lack of security, all potentially being drivers to a, an upsurge in the migration crisis that, that many sort of thinkers in the MOD think we've only seen the foothills of that crisis. So again, that's another reason to get involved in capacity building uh, and peace and security missions. So um, I, expect, I expect we might see more of that. Christopher Lee. I think that the... Fascination is going to be with what the Navy does with these two aircraft carriers and for people to get realistic and project because you know we're talking about what might be NATO policy earlier. Um, we've got aircraft carriers, what you've got is one thing and it's force projection. That's the reason you have aircraft carriers, that you can project force anywhere in the world. But you can't drive them if you can't get mixed up with other people's policies. And I mean, you take, for example, we were talking about there about the Gulf, Gulf protection. It's interesting that the, the, the Royal Navy is part of the American Gulf Protection Force, not the European Gulf Protection Force. Mm -hmm. And there you've got a one identified, not crisis, but a management, Gulf management to do. And you've already got two systems which are not exactly opposed but two systems where there ought to be at least one command system. Michael Clark, do you, do you think the Royal Navy will keep both its aircraft carriers? It certainly wants to, and it will it will design its strategy so that it does. But they won't all, they won't both be at sea at once. I mean, I think they'll they'll be rotating in the sense that there'll be one available because we can only defend one aircraft carrier with the rest of the, the size of the navy. We we could not put out two carrier battle groups where they were both um, safe. So it's possible that the two of them would be at sea um, at one time. And actually, in 2020, they'll both be at sea because one will be doing sea trials and the other will be doing its first um, visits and so on but I think that will be relatively unusual I think we'll tend to see one available and one a bit less less ready or, or uh, lower down the pecking order Professor Paul Rogers what do you think our soldiers sailor and airmen will be involved in in 2020 I go back to what Lucy was saying I think we're moving into a very uncertain world with many small problems uh, which can be generated very quickly uh, a lot of instability in significant parts of the world and this is 2020 we're not talking about 2025 or more where everything changes as, as the climate it really kicks in with its big changes so I think one of the things if Britain actually wants to be a significant state remember we're 1% of the world population we always tend to forget that then if it really is playing the game of trying to be a significant power it has to recognise that different roles are going to become much more important uh, did, I mean is, is, it, is Britain a significant global power? It thinks it is, it isn't this is a problem. It thinks uh, We still have, if I use that phrase like the French, we have this delusion of post-imperial grandeur 
and we still believe we're a much more important power than we are. The point is that there's a hugely important role for a state like Britain to play. It's got a large military, it's got a lot of experience, but those, I think, are going to be radically different roles. And I think the problem is the aircraft carrier decision is warping us in an old-fashioned direction. On, on paper, um, Britain is the only other global military power, along with the United States, on paper, because Russia is not a genuine global power, China is not yet a global power, nor is India. Um, France is in more or less the same league, but only just about. Yeah. And the fact is, we've, we're in this, this rather strange situation mm. where, on paper, mm. we, we're the only other global power. But we know you can't sustain it. We yeah. know it, we just, it's far too small. So what will happen is the other powers will become genuinely global, and we'll be, as it were, the top of a second rank, but struggling to maintain that position. I think we've done quite well in investing in some of the emerging um, technologies. You know, we're seen as a world leader in cyber, both defensive and offensive. Certainly, GCHQ's capabilities are looked to um, by by the US, Five Eyes and NATO. You know, we're the first country to offer our offensive capability to the Western Alliance. And I think some of the rhetoric coming out of the Conservative election campaign about the UK having its first space command, about really boosting public investment in R&D could mean there's a chance there for technology that has military as well as civilian functions. You actually get to a point that you have to start asking what do we mean by being a world power yeah. and uh, what we, I mean British soldiers at the moment are in 25 countries. Now if you, you start looking at that some of them are doing nothing more than doing exercises and build, bridge building mm -hmm. but it's influence, it's something which they've done for 30, 40, 50 years. When we talk about global power there's an illusion also that it means, are you going to another Iraq war? Are you going to be part of the coalition of the very willing with the United States? Uh, uh, how much can you influence? I mean, the biggest influence you might have is, in fact, at the, uh, in the Security Council of the United Nations. These things that we don't really have to get to. But we are getting to something else, uh, and that is if the 8 out of the 11 economic uh, institutions are right about Brexit, uh, the United Kingdom over the next sort of eight, nine years will be in great financial difficulties. Mm. So it's also you start to say, well, I mean, we say, well, look, do we get to the, uh, get rid of the aircraft carriers or, or whatever? We are actually getting the position where can we actually afford financially to yeah. have okay. the kit and the programmes to be what we would call even influential, well, never mind the power. Let's talk specifically then about whether we will have, well, the armed forces will have the kit it needs, because five years' time, when there's another general election, um, in terms of people and kit, Lucy, do you think the MOD will get what it needs? I mean, we have this emergency meeting even today, don't we, with the Chief of Defence staff worrying about the future and whether there's going to be enough money next year. Well, there are always concerns that the MOD doesn't have enough money, but I do think that... Um, the election campaign we've had, the, the makeup of the Conservative electorate, the voters in the Midlands and North, many traditional Labour voters who, who lent Boris Johnson their votes, mean that I think we're likely to see him really have to follow through on a lot of the pledges to put a lot of funding into the NHS, into education, 20,000 more police officers. Those will be the priorities. We have to be realistic. You know, we, we all around this table have an interest in defence, but I'm not confident it's going to get more money. And I think the idea of this procurement re review that they're going to hold will be to say that there's been so much money being wasted, there's a lot of room for efficiencies here. So I think that people are right to be worried. Michael Clark, what about recruitment to the armed forces? Yeah, I mean, that goes up and down according to what the armed forces are doing. Um, in general, recruitment's been poor, or poorer in the last few years, partly because it's been badly organised and it's been privatised in ways that haven't helped. 
the bigger problem they have is retention. I mean, generally speaking, the, the armed forces can normally recruit the, the, the numbers that they need if they just improve the offer, improve the pay, and just advertise it well. But the difficulty they have is in retaining people after they've been expensively trained. So if they leave after six or seven years instead of 12 or 13 years, that matters. And that's the problem with all of the armed forces. And the Navy has been... They've gotten a, a really acute problem because of the specialists that they need. The Army... We always think about the Army because they have bigger numbers. But Navy is, is difficult for its specialists. The, the Air Force forces had similar sorts of problems because it's very technocratic service and the slowness with which uh, pilots go through the training programs and some of them just leave before they qualify as pilots because they're fed up of being told it'll be another six months another six months before they can move from their basic training to get inside another a decent cockpit from what you're saying then there is no one real answer to retention being solved no i mean all the all three forces all three arms of the uh, armed services have to think about retention differently because their offer is different i mean they 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 their career prospects that they offer people is, is all different. Um, but I'm not as bothered about recruitment. That goes up and down with, with world politics, as it were. But retention is the underlying weakness, and that weakness has become greater because the forces are now so small that there's, there's less... Um, there's less of an opportunity for young men and women inside any of the three armed services. Uh, Paul Rogers, in terms of uh, Trident, it does seem that it's here to stay. Possibly. I wouldn't rule anything out, though, with this government, particularly with Cummings there, and what they're going to be facing in the long term, because Trident... Do you think seriously he could...? It's, it's possible. It's possible a scaling down. The, the, this is the really big expenditure over the next 30 or 40 years as a single item. And, of course, you have the political dimension with Scotland, you can't say. I mean, we wouldn't really be able to use have Trident based in Milford Haven or Devonport. But the point is that I think there could be big changes there quite unexpectedly. Sit rep with Kate Still to come, a second term for Trump, America's worldview before the next presidential election, and how things are heating up in the war against climate change. PFBS Sit rep. I wanted to say it's an honor to be with Chairman Kim. It's an honor to be together. In really a country, Vietnam, where they've really rolled out the red carpet. We got to meet, and uh, stepping across that line was a great honor. A lot of progress has been made. The worst mistake that the United States has ever made, in my opinion, was going into the Middle East. The Kurdish rebels uh, are using um, American weapons because they were fighting alongside the Americans uh, for quite some time, until Sunday, when uh, the American troops pulled out on the orders of Donald Trump. Well, he's two-faced. Uh, he's not paying 2%, and he should be paying 2%. It's Canada. They have money. A reminder there of some of President Trump's foreign exploits in 2019. Let's talk to Simon Marks, chief correspondent at Feature Story News, who joins us from Washington. Hello, Simon. Um, what does America Hello, want Kate. to do or have to do with its armed forces this coming year? Well, President Trump, as you know, is going into a re-election battle. He doesn't yet know against whom. Uh, but in order to try and gild the lily ahead of that, it's absolutely clear that 2020 is going to be uh, a year of great expenditure here on the military. President Trump values the military vote greatly, and he wants to try to make sure that to the extent that it's a monolithic vote, it's his. Uh, so you're going to see an additional $22 billion pumped in uh, to the Pentagon's budget, which reaches $738 billion uh, for the year 2020, 3.1% pay rise for military personnel. We're going to see 
uh, 14 new ships being commissioned so that the United States gets closer uh, to its target of a 355-ship uh, naval force, uh, more F-35s being procured, and, of course, you were talking a bit earlier about the Space Command in Britain, the Space Force will officially become the sixth branch of the U.S. military in 2020. So this is a president, at least in terms of military funding and military growth, who wants to be able to hit the campaign trail and say, look, I made good on my promises as to what he's going to do with that military in 2020 and potentially beyond, uh, that's a much more open question. And with 2020 being election year, what do you think that will mean for US foreign policy? Well, first of all, it will take a back seat because uh, everyone's focus here, literally, I think, from here on out, is going to be on the election campaign. Uh, but there are also just massive questions still hanging over uh, President Trump's foreign and defence policy. Indeed, is there a strategic, uh, coherent foreign uh, and defence policy? So if you look at Afghanistan and Syria, it's still very unclear what size of force will be retained uh, in the region. The generals behind the scenes are trying to run circles around the commander-in-chief to uh, prevent him uh, from acting on what they view uh, as some of his more reflexive, less thought-out uh, ideas for full-scale withdrawal. Uh, Korea, I mean, there's an ongoing uh, negotiation between the United States and North Korea uh, about the kind of cost-sharing for the U.S. defense uh, of Korea that President Trump uh, is insisting upon. Uh, and then, of course, there is the issue of nuclear disarmament. Uh, will President Trump succeed in any way in drawing the Chinese into uh, a conversation about future arms agreements, even as existing arm arms agreements between uh, Washington and Moscow fall away or are uh, under threat? So far, the Chinese have evinced no interest in uh, joining that kind of conversation. Will any of that, that get much attention here over the next 12 months? Probably not in terms of front-page headline-making, but behind the scenes there will be detailed conversations underway about all of them. Uh, Paul Rogers is in the studio with us, and he, he laughed when you said that uh, Donald Trump's foreign policy was still unclear exactly what it was. Um, Paul, how do, how do you see things going forward? It depends very much on whether Trump gets re-elected, but it, you just cannot predict what he will do. And I think it's the despair often of senior people in the Pentagon because they just don't know where they are. And what they try to do behind the scenes is carry on more or less as before. Whatever he says, they try to ignore it or diminish it. But the problem is that you also have a State Department which has been denuded of many of its specialists. It's hugely understaffed at a senior level. You do not have the diplomatic weight in the United States that you had uh, even five years ago. Mm. And that, I think, is affecting decision-taking. Lucy Fisher, the, the, the unpredictability of Donald Trump in terms of foreign policy has been, is well, well known and what has been talked about a lot, but has also been suggested that this unpredictability predictability can actually bring results in terms of, well, at least the meeting with Kim Jong-un, North Korea's leader, which would perhaps never would have happened if he hadn't called him all kinds of things like a rocket man on a suicide mission and things like that, and then suddenly turn around and want to meet him. Is there a benefit to some extent if he's kept under control behind the scenes? I'm not so sure there is. I mean, fine, they had a meeting, but what are really the results from that? You know, there's not really a deliverable um, we can point to there. I think 
we've seen this year the the uptick from sort of unpredictable rhetoric which can be insulting um and f- farcical in some senses to actually incredibly damaging moves and i think in particular this autumn of the shock announcement that he was going to um affect a complete um drawdown of us troops in syria which came as total news to the us uh, to the uk and france which have special forces out there on the ground that absolutely rely on those us networks for logistics transport um uh, surveillance uh, reconnaissance and so forth and i think that that has that has will have a long-lasting impact even at mill-to-mill levels people were very very upset that they hadn't had a pre-warning of that announcement and and i know it's not necessarily going to happen in that form we've heard in recent weeks um generals say that there'll probably be about five to six hundred u.s troops left in the country but when you rely on another military partner on the ground to have that sort of shock announcement it is really damaging simon marks when that actually happened did it have much i mean did the public in the us really care well i think the military families definitely cared i mean president trump on numerous occasions has promised that he's bringing everybody home uh, and then has failed to deliver on the promise and we've sort of seen that Uh, cycle repeat itself with this particular uh, decision by President Trump. It was certainly an absolutely jaw-dropping moment uh, here in Washington, D.C., that particular weekend after that late-night Sunday telephone call between President Trump uh, and President Recep Tayyip Erdogan. I mean, I think the other point I would make is there's no guarantee that the people heading uh, the Department of Defense and the State Department will still be at their posts throughout 2020. It seems pretty certain that Mike Pompeo uh, is eyeing the possibility of running for the U.S. Senate, so he may well uh, be departing the State Department that has indeed been thoroughly denuded and hollowed out uh, as a result of uh, Donald Trump's presidency. So he may depart the, the, the stage. And as for Mark Esper, the Secretary of Defense, Will 2020 be the year when he glances at his uh, telephone uh, and his Twitter feed and discovers on Twitter that he has been dispatched like others before him by President Trump? We simply just don't know. That's part of the unpredictability on a daily basis of a president who makes decisions on his own pretty much behind the walls of the White House without, as was the case uh, with uh, northern Syria, without any input from his senior military people. Professor Paul Rogers, uh, US sanctions continue against Iran. Do you think we're going to see any movement on this? It's possible. There are lots of things happening there. The the problems in Iraq are quite extraordinary at present. You have several hundred people being killed in protests, which are partly because of so many young Shia feeling that they're out of things, but also there's a lot of, a lot of anger about the influence of Iran in Iraq, uh, and that could blow up more. The Iraq, Iranians have many economic problems of their own. I wouldn't be surprised to see the risk of a crisis developing by the Iranians taking one more step down the nuclear road. Um, that again, Mike said, saying earlier on, the significance of the attack on the Applegate refinery was really a marker. The Americans didn't take any action. Do, do you think 2020, Michael Clark, will be the year which, which we see Iran consolidating its influence in the region? Yes, I think we're we're likely to see a Gulf crisis yes. uh, in 2020. It, it hasn't happened this year. I think it will happen next year because the Iranians, as Paul said, they're under pressure for all sorts of other reasons. They want to indicate to the world that they can uh, actually affect the region. They're 
trying they, they will want to distract attention and there is this sense that the Saudis are on the back foot for all sorts of other reasons the Saudis have made a complete mess of their policy over the last 18 months the Iranians also under pressure for domestic reasons I think will push them um, and the idea that the United States won't be able to do anything about it I think will be quite important so I think I'm looking towards a, a pretty complex but quite nasty crisis in the Gulf sometime during next year mm. Christopher Lee how do you see it? This whole idea of arms control and you've got to have an agreement say with the North Koreans or, or whatever uh, arms agreements were historically bilateral usually between the United States and the old Soviet Union and that anybody else could churn in but they didn't. What we're seeing now is the possibility of uh, arrangements between, let's say, North Korea, etc. But still with the same same basis. Arms control, you, you, you come to an agreement um, that you get an agreement on things that you don't want the other side to have, that you don't particularly want, or technologically you can't make. And it's this last point. We are moving into a new technology of arms, arms production of what certain systems can do, where they can do them, uh, how they, they, they sign in with the other things that you're actually doing. And with the exception, and this is where we come back to, uh, 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 to come back to Iran, with the exception of Israel, you must never leave Israel out of the Middle East conundrum. They have their own agenda, if you like, an extremist uh, of how to handle uh, Iran. And if Iran goes to that next stage, as you're suggesting, right, of perhaps a, a, a next uh, nuclear weapon stage. Um, just listen to what Israel, in a total political mess at the moment, are going to have to have another election. Uh, just imagine what they might want to do. The Iranians are saying, you know, we are sticking to the nuclear agreement. Although the Americans have pulled out, the JCPOA, the joint agreement, mm. we are sticking to it. But don't push us any further because we are just at the point where we'll stop sticking to it. And that's, I think, is where we'll be next year. Mm. And that'll be the proliferation point that Christopher's making. And Israel will not sit still if that happens. No. I mean, if uh, you look at what Israel is doing at present with the air raids in Iraq... You know, these have been going on. They've been taking, doing raids in, in, in Syria and Lebanon. They've now started doing them in Iraq against Iranian interests. Uh, and that has quite a big significance longer term, as certainly from Tehran's point of view. And it's part of pattern, not on a grand scale, but it's part of a pattern on these disruptions within the whole of the Middle East. Uh, you know, we've come a long way since 2011. But look what's happening in Beirut at the moment. Yeah. Something which we hadn't <coughs> expected. It is, is a protest against the way they are governed. Yeah, Iraq is a protest against the way they are governed. It is not a, a sheer Sunni protest. It is simply as that. Young men haven't got a job, but got an education. Yeah. It's like a rerun of 2011 in, in different states now. Yeah. Right, yeah. Uh, we'll just leave it there for the moment. Uh, Simon Marks in Washington, thank you very much for your time today. Now for something that Trump doesn't like. This is all wrong. I shouldn't be up here. I should be back in school on the other side of the ocean. Yet you all come to us young people for hope. How dare you? People of the city, come and join us. This is for your children and grandchildren. Do not let your fat bosses deceive you. They know the truth. The involvement of the military in virtually every activity in the world uses up huge amounts of resources, increases CO2 emissions. Military needs to be decarbonized. 6% of Britain's carbon emissions are actually expended by the military. Evidentemente, 
Obviously, it's sad that we were not able to reach a final agreement. We were so close, but I thank you for all the long hours trying to achieve it. Yes, 2019 was the year climate change made big news, or climate emergency, as you'd put it, Professor Paul Rogers. Yes, I would. The, the central problem with the whole issue is that to prevent really serious problems in the 2030s, 40s and 50s, you have to take a great deal of action now. I mean, what we should be facing is rapid decarbonisation over the next 10 years. The problem is that so many key countries just aren't interested in it. I mean, the Americans aren't, the Brazilians, the Russians, the Australians. India and China will not be told what to do, even though China is making progress. Mm. And look at the Canadians. They will walk, talk the talk, but they won't walk the walk because of their own productions. You say the Americans aren't interested, but we have uh, World War Zero that's been launched by uh, former Secretary of State John Kerry and Arnie Schwarzenegger. I mean, those kind of initiatives, are going to cut anything? Yeah. But the, the thing about this is, yes, and one has to remember, you say America is in, Trump isn't interested. Mm. And the thing is, many American states are doing a lot. But compared with what has to be done, it's really very small beer. Uh, and I think, yes, there's been a change in the public mood. There's a change in the knowledge and promotion of the science. It's much higher standard now. But it, this is probably the biggest single problem facing humanity. And we're really not addressing it as seriously as we could. Michael Clark, when people talk about a war on climate change, is that a useful kind of rhetoric? Because a war, I suppose, suggests you have to find some way, some technological equipment way of fixing it or mm. dealing with it or battling it. It's the securitization issue, isn't it? Yes. That anything that, anything that, that threatens to stop people going about their daily lives and, re and requires the mobilization of extra resources is a security problem. So if you live in Mexico, crime and narcotics are a security problem. They're your, they're your biggest problem. If you live in certain countries, environment is your biggest problem. Now, in, in Britain, that's, environment isn't quite our biggest problem that in public mind, but it securitizes the issue. So yes, you, you can talk about a war. You've got to be very careful, of course, because you've got to say, well, what's the, what's the depth to which this could affect our daily lives? But as we go through you know, severe weather events, which, let's face it, have only inconvenienced us. They haven't done the sort of damage that they're doing in Australia. But it brings to the, to the public sense, I think, or to, to the idea that, that behind the public uh, thinking about this, that actually climate is changing very rapidly and that mm. we are reaching a point where we've got to do something about it. And what's interesting about the, the whole environmental movement, it's not really top-down, it's not driven by governments, it's driven upwards. It's a bottom-up movement which governments are being um, harangued into action or, in some cases, lack of action or inaction. And what is fascinating about the recent election campaign is if you look, exclude the Brexit, the DUP and UKIP, all the other opposition parties were remarkably strong on the climate change thing talking about you know a green transformation and i have to say reluctantly that in fact the conservative party was the weakest on this and this i think is going to affect them more and more in the coming years particularly for michael says they survive uh, for a decade because it's not going to be sustainable uh, to basically do the minimum it simply isn't. I mean, I think the public mood and the international mood will change. Yes, we're not affected ourselves to any great extent, although I don't live that far from Fish Lake, which really took a, a battering in, mm, in the storm. Yeah. But what you're going to see in the military, I think point made earlier on, the MOD know full well that the impact on migration is going to be massive if it is unchecked, if climate change is unchecked. Christopher Lee, you mentioned uh, the importance of the meeting in Madrid, the UN meeting uh, tackling climate change. What about next year? Do you think COP26 in Glasgow is going to cut anything? Well, if you look at the, uh, the consequences of Madrid, you're not going to have a great deal of hope that you'll get much further at Glasgow. But it's a huge opportunity. There's another side of this, you know. One of the problems of NATO, one of the problems of British defence is that there are no big ideas. 
And frankly, the big idea should be now to be able to link the military debate with climate change because it's very much part of what you do with climate change. How do you live with climate change? How do you, live, how do you how help do you other people it, do so? But if you take that seriously, then uh, you're in the business not of trying to prevent the damage, but to prevent it happening in the first place. You're into conflict prevention. So you could argue, to borrow the old Quaker <laughs> phrase, one of the jobs of the senior military is to speak truth to the political power and say you've got to get real mm -hmm. about preventing climate disruption happening. Uh, but the military, I mean, they're rightly concerned with defending the realm. They may think long term, but their time frame for action is short term. The problem is they've actually got to act long term in this regard because they do have a lot of influence. Mm. Lucy Fisher, uh, we've heard the military in the UK talking about becoming greener. Do you think they will do? Well, I think there was a step change this autumn with um, CGS uh, General Sir Mark Carlton Smith talking about the need for um, a clean revolution in the army. He talked about the idea of um, perhaps this being the last generation of tanks and armoured vehicles um, that will run on fossil fuels. I think possibly that is technology that's 15, 20 years away before we might see uh, sort of solar-powered tanks or, or, or similar. <laughs> Such a thought. Well, quite. But, you Only know, available it, to fight in the desert or sunny yes, places. Yes, yes, <laughs> absolutely. Why have tanks anyway? But, <laughs> but clearly it shows, um, it, it shows intent. And it was interesting to me that he linked um, the importance of the Army and, and, and the Armed Forces doing better on their green credentials to recruitment. He noted that it, it, it matters to young people that they're, that they're making uh, moves on this. And, and we see sort of small but important moves as well to kind of, you know, do away with disposable plastics that, are, you know, pr proliferate on armed forces bases around the world. But when you come back to it, we are just a small player in this. You know, I looked up the um, International Energy Agency uh, um, CO2 emission figures. You know, in, for 2018, the UK produced just one percent of those. You know, China was 29 percent, the US 16. E you know, we're not really a leader, and we're not really the biggest contributor in in this whole. But we problem. can have global influence, can't we? <laughs> to bring well, it the back point to is that, that well. this, you know, because of the nature of the country's capability for renewables and the rest, which is almost pretty nearly unparalleled. Britain could actually, this is the one area in all the areas where curiously Britain could punch above its weight. It's going to need to punch above its weight sometime if it wants to be big because it's going to be outside Europe. The paradox is that if you had a government which was really pushing this, uh, that would be the way, and I take Lucy's point about the 1% emissions, if you want to be a significant power in, in the world in the coming era, then if you're leading on that, it's probably going to increase your status more than anything else. Do you know, a couple of points. If you listen to the Swedish girl, and if you went to Madrid... The Swedish girl, Greta what's Thunberg. Her name? What's her name? Greta Thunberg. Yeah, OK. And, and you went the to Madrid. Swedish person girl. doesn't know that name. <laughs> doesn't, doesn't. Haven't you bought her book? Well, no, she's... Anyway, go on. If you listen to her, and most of the heads of delegation and the important people at the dele in the delegations in Madrid did not listen to her. Yeah. They left the auditorium. Mm. But if you listen to her, she says... Um, each person go and do something. Now that's our one percent, as far as the United Kingdom is concerned. And the other point is listen to George W. Bush. George W. Bush said, when industry can make a buck out of this, then they will start doing it. But he didn't add, not until 
they can muck, make mm. a buck out of it. So, you know, how do, how do you get oil in, in, in America at the moment? Uh, it's the cheapest way, the most dangerous way of doing it. Right, let's have a look forward to our predictions to end this session for 2020. Uh, who wants to start? Paul Rogers, uh, I'll put the finger on you. Well, <laughs> I th watch out for a crisis over North Korea, because basically Trump has gone on the record firmly saying the North Korea will never be able to strike the United States with nuclear weapons. Theoretically, it's going to be able to do this And so there's this year. Christmas present, isn't it, that uh, Kim yeah. Jong-un has been talking about, exactly. whatever that might so be. I think there could be a sudden crisis there. But coming back to the more recent part of our discussion, I think you have to combine the whole climate issue, the limitations to growth, with the problems of marginalisation. The very sharp economic geographer Edwin Brooks said 45 years ago that what you have to avoid is, quotes, a crowded, glowering planet of massive inequalities of wealth buttressed by stark force, yet endlessly threatened by desperate people in the global ghettos. 45 years later, we're closer to that than we were. And that seems to me, if you're really serious about conducting a different kind of strategy for Britain, you've got to think that basically, because we're moving into a very changing world. I think we've seen extraordinary changes in the last two decades. Compared with the 2020s, you ain't seen nothing yet. Lucy Fisher, what are your predictions for 2020? Well, I'm interested in what we're going to see in terms of hybrid warfare. And in particular, I note that Kieran Martin, the head of the National Cyber Security Centre, warned that it was a matter of when, not if, we'd see our first Category 1 national cyber emergency in the UK. He predicted we'd see that by the end of this decade. So we're uh, what, a week or so away from that, so it's overdue. I wonder if, if next year we'll see that. What kind of thing do you think uh, we'd envisage in that situation? Well, you know, to, to reach that Category Category one level, and given the fact that the WannaCry attack, you know, which affected affected the the NHS um, quite severely, was only Category two, I think we'd really be talking about a very severe cyber attack that had um, a, a real life impact either on the energy grid or perhaps transport networks, but something that will be pretty show stopping. Michael Clark. Yeah, I mean, in world terms, uh, we talked about a Gulf crisis earlier on, and I think we'll see that next year. I also think we'll see a, an international crisis in the Mediterranean in various ways. I think the Mediterranean is becoming a very dangerous and difficult place, particularly the eastern Mediterranean. The eastern Mediterranean has been like a spring-loaded trap, and um, we don't know if a mouse will run across the trap, and when it does, it'll always be over a bank holiday, but that's just the way it is. But <laughs> I think the spring-loading is now becoming really quite acute. And in Britain, I, th th my point was exactly the same as Lucia's. I think we'll see a Category 1 cyber attack if not next year then quite soon are we prepared for it uh we're as prepared as we can be our critical national infrastructure resilience is not bad but it's not good enough that's the point and and at least 80 percent of our cni network is in private hands not run by the government yeah. or by or by public organizations so we've done more than most on that but but we just don't know we've never had a category one attack something that really attempts to attack our cni or some aspect of it but i think we'll see that and we've got to be prepared for it i think we've got to be prepared for more terrorism uh, there are all sorts of reasons to believe there's another there's another wave building out there which will hit European countries in the next year or two. And then I think we'll see a, a, a review, the big review the government has talked about. Let's call it the Global Britain Review, mm. more than a defence review. And I think defence will be glad if it's a Global Britain Review and across the board. And I think we'll see that. And I hope it is not completed by the end of the year. I hope it's bigger than that. Because if they do a quick and dirty review... Back of the envelope, job. Back of the envelope. Well, I could write it now. If they're going to produce a review in September, I could tell them now what will be in it. They need to do a much bigger job and produce it probably during 2021 um, and it really will fundamentally or should fundamentally reorder some of our priorities and our resources that we spend on external affairs. Christopher Lee, how do you see 2020? I, tell you, I would like to see one thing which won't happen and that is uh, a military contingent 
or group going to the December climate change uh, conference for future requirements. What does this mean for us? And coming back, and let's see what they write about it. I'd love to see not that not going to happen, though, is it, you say? Uh, well, I, I say that. Might? Uh, I'm, not, I'm not entirely sure of that. There are a few people who would like it to happen. You can always go there, even as a token. But the other thing is, is Africa, to my mind. Um, we are going to be more concerned whether we get involved or not. We are involved, say, with the French, um, but we're going to get far more involved than we imagined that we might. And there are places that we start should think about. Here, people talking in abbreviations like CAR, you know, Central African Republic. Hmm. These places are deeper and more dangerous than ever we can imagine. And every time we look round, uh, there is another one, and we can get involved, and we might just get involved. And that that spreads people to start to think about what is the future use of the of the British British Armed Forces, not what you do with what you've got in the way that you've always done it. If I could just, just go around the table very briefly with one word to say what you think the biggest current threat is to UK security, what would it be, Christopher Stockley? Cyber. Paul. Climate change. Lucy. Russia. Michael. I go cyber and terrorism. Two. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well cyber if I had to choose. Okay, and uh, in terms of anything positive for next year, what, what are the good things to look forward to in defence? Oh, I think the good things to look forward to are some sort of stability in, in having a defence secretary who stays for a while and a government that backs that defence secretary up. That would be nice, and that is it for this week and for this year. My thanks to Professor Michael Clark, Lucy Fisher, Professor Paul Rogers and Christopher Lee. Join the discussion on Twitter, follow us at BFBS SITREP. We're back in three weeks' time, so from me, Kate Chabot, and all of us here, do have a very merry and safe Christmas and a happy new year. <laughs>